Well, it's good to be worshiping with you all. John, I'm a pastor here at New City. A few weeks ago, I was uh, <clears throat> aware of a story that broke. The former CEO of Zappos, you know, the online uh, shopping place where you can buy shoes. His name uh, was Tony Shea, and he died in a house fire, and there was sort of slowly emerging details about what had happened. And since his death, there's been a few articles that have come out that have shed some light into what was going on in his life before he died in a fire in his house in Connecticut. On the surface, he was uh, known as this successful entrepreneur and leader. In his early 20s, he actually, before he was at Zappos, he started a company, a startup company in his early 20s that he then sold in his mid-20s, it's called Link Exchange, and he then sold to Microsoft in his mid-20s for like $120 million. So that's pretty good before you turn 30. Uh, he then went on to heavily invest in Zappos, and, and he was then invited to become their CEO, and he helped grow them through the dot-com bubble burst, and then sell the company for nearly a billion dollars to Amazon. And then over this, he, he continued to run the company, but then over the summer he retired, um, during some of that time, he uh, invested heavily in the revitalization of parts of Las Vegas and then also the same in Park City. When I was reading articles about him, there was a picture of him interviewing Bill Clinton on a stage. Uh, he wrote a best-selling book called Delivering Happiness about how to uh, structure or lead in such a way that corporate culture keeps people happy. And so as you read, as I read all of these articles about him, the thing that really stood out is from the outside, this guy is killing it. He, he, he's successful in every metric. A, a serial or at least double entrepreneur, both companies even leads to these huge buyout paydays for investors and himself. He's a leader of leaders. He's an author. He has this platform where he gets to go around and speak at these conferences and interview powerful people. From the outside, he comes from nothing, up and makes all this money. So from the outside, he just looks like the quintessential person of what success and well-being look like. But what has emerged as you read these articles after his death is that from the inside, from those who knew him best, he was a deeply troubled individual. In the final months of his life, he was taking more and more drugs and, and doing all sorts of weird things like seeing how little oxygen he could survive on, how little food he could have, and, and even weirder behavior. And what you, you sense as you read through this stuff is that while the pandemic certainly exacerbated some of his unhappiness, at his core, he, he was very far from a happy person. Delight, despite writing a book called Delivering Happiness, he seemed extremely unhappy himself. Now I bring him up, I don't have any interest in judging or condemning him, but what I do want to do is notice something about his story that you and I are often reluctant to accept. The very things that many of us make as the primary pursuit of our life that we give energy and resources towards because we believe that it will result in happiness and well-being, do not deliver. Money, success, fame, 
power. He had all of this in abundance. And he was clearly very unhappy. Worth a, nearly a billion dollars at his death was this leader, self-made author, had all of these successful achievements. And yet, he was not happy. On some level, we all kind of know this already, we know that money can't make us happy, but it's so hard to live in the truth of that awareness. Even in the smallest places of our lives, it's hard for us to stop trying to live this same sort of life that Tony Shea lived, where we're trying to be the best and win in every aspect of our life. Maybe in sports, there's this drive to be better than other people, at work to gain more and more status, in relational conflict not to lose an argument, and with money, don't we all just want a little bit more in order to secure security, future happiness and well-being? You know, when we look at his life and you ask, will money buy happiness? We know that's not true, but then when we live our life, it's so hard for us not to pursue these things, not to give our energy to these things to the same things that Tony Shea gave his life to. And my hope is that his life can be a warning for us, that we won't follow his example of, of living and pursuing these things that leads clearly to misery, but instead follow a better example that is laid out for us in our passage for today in John the Baptist. Today's the third Sunday of Advent, and the theme of the third Sunday of Advent is joy. What, it, what does it mean? What does it look like? How do we live a life that is full of joy? And unlike the pursuit of happiness, we experience joy more indirectly. Happiness, we feel like we have to get these things and then I'll be happy, but joy is the indirect fruit of other choices we make about our life. Joy is not dependent upon circumstances or what we can achieve. Joy is a spiritual phenomenon that can dwell in me and dwell in you. It's that deep sense of well-being that we can hold within our souls, even when bad stuff is happening around us. Bad stuff that may not lead to just sort of circumstantial happiness can, though, in the midst of that, we can have joy in our souls. And what we learn in our passage for today is that joy, this sort of deep well-being, comes from fulfilling our spiritual purpose which frequently doesn't coincide with getting all the things we think we need to make us happy or, or make us great or, or the, this ascent to, to grandeur. In fact, it, it often is accompanied by the opposite. Our passage is from the lectionary reading for this Sunday, and it provides this contrast of trajectory of life. You have Tony Shea kind of going like this, and you have John the Baptist going like this. But while Tony Shea's upward ascent is accompanied by misery. John the Baptist's downward descent of diminishment is marked by joy. You and I, we often make choices 
on this trajectory? How can we build our career? How can we accumulate wealth? How can we impress those who are closest to us? Anything that will make us greater. John the Baptist does the opposite. He makes choice according to a different paradigm and it often leads him down this path of diminishment. But because his life is making decisions around this purpose, the spiritual purpose, this calling that he has, he's filled with joy. Before Jesus arrives on the scene, John the Baptist, he built this ministry of national significance. He was the, the up-and-coming leader of his day. And I know that this may not sound like that much of a significant thing, but ancient cultures were much more overtly religious than our cultures are, than our culture is. So to be a religious leader like John the Baptist is more the equivalent of like being the, the greatest pop star or the most well-known artist of our day. He has that level of recognition and power and status in society. And he's gained this huge following. He's known throughout all of Israel and throughout all the Gospels. We see that before Jesus came along, everybody is going out to John the Baptist. And the thing that he is doing, the thing that he is known for, is baptism. And he isn't just dunking people in random water. He's doing something more significant. He's reenacting the birth of their nation. That happened thousands of years before them. He was having people exit the promised land, go out on the other side, past the eastern border, and then turn around and re-enter the promised land by being baptized in the Jordan River and then coming up and re-entering the promised land. And this is a sign of contrition and repentance and, and a cry out to God for restoration and healing. And everyone was doing it. John says all of Israel, the whole country went out to be baptized by John. But then Jesus shows up and he starts baptizing people. John's known as this great baptizer. This is like his thing. But then Jesus starts baptizing people too. And his crowds are growing. And John's are shrinking. Verse 22 we read, Then Jesus and his disciples went out for a length of time into the Judean countryside where they baptized people. And then in verse 25, an argument then developed between John's disciples and a particular Jewish man about baptism. So they went to John and asked him, Teacher, are you aware that the one you told us about at the crossing place, he's now baptizing everyone with larger crowds than yours? People are flocking to him. What do you think about that? So the heart of what is happening in our passage is that John's ministry, and along with it, his status, his power, his influence, his fame, his position in society, is diminishing because of Jesus. And it's a bit like if at your workplace you're known for something that everybody counts on you to do, but then somebody else is hired and they can do it 10% better and much faster than you. And all the praise that you used to get starts going to re being redirected to this new hire. And everyone starts looking at you wondering, why do you still work here? It's a hard spot to be in. 
And John's disciples are feeling that, and they're on edge about this, and they are now argumentative and anxious about it. And you can hear that in our, in our passage. They're coming to John basically saying, your ministry is fading. Do something. Nobody takes diminishment sitting down. But John isn't anxious. Because becoming great, taking this trajectory, that was never his purpose. His fame sort of just happened to him. His status sort of just happened to him almost by accident. He had a spiritual calling from God. And now, that calling was being fulfilled. It just so happened that it also meant he was being diminished. Listen to his reply, how he talks about this experience. A person can only receive what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah. I, I am not on this path of ascent towards grandeur, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. And it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. John says a person can only receive or receive only what is given them from heaven. Each of us has a calling and a spiritual purpose. We can only receive what's been given to us. For John, his purpose, his whole life, the simple act of preparing the way for Jesus. He's preparing the hearts of the people to receive and delight in Jesus. And, and the analogy that he makes is of a wedding. He's preparing the people to be wed to Jesus. He sees himself as the best man, and in ancient cultures, the best man attended to the bride, helped her be ready for the wedding when the bridegroom arrived. That arrived. That's his purpose, to prepare people for marriage, for union with Jesus. So when Jesus shows up and starts baptizing people, and all the people who used to come to John are now going to Jesus, John is not upset. His purpose was never just to get as many people to follow him as possible. His status is diminished, but his purpose is being fulfilled. People are leaving him because they're going to Jesus, but this is exactly his calling all along. So what he experiences within him is joy. And while John's story is unique to him, there are parallels that apply to us. That's why John, the Gospel author, includes this story in such a way. You and I are supposed to, to read our own stories into this story. It has meaning for you and me. Because we all have our own purpose and our own spiritual callings. 
Some of that may be very specific, but for a lot of us, it's, it's more general. Like, if you're married, you're called to love your spouse. Like, you love your own body. And this inevitably will require your diminishment as you put your spouse's needs before your own. You and I are called to testify to God's love for the world in the way that we love one another. And if we testify to God's love for the world the way God loves us, then that means we lay down our lives like Jesus laid down His life for us. Also, a very diminishing experience. It's God's will for us, we talked about this a few weeks ago, to rejoice and give thanks in all circumstances. And this means that we let go of being in control and making sure everything leads to this greater and greater trajectory of ascent and give thanks simply in God's presence with us and love for us. It is God's spiritual calling to you and to me to forgive those who wrong you. Not guard your reputation, guard your image, protect everything, make people pay who wrong you but to forgive your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In short, God's purposes for me and for you are unique in each of our contexts, but generally speaking, they are a calling to love the people that are around us in ways that are are often sacrificial and painful and have real cost to us to lead lives of love in all our relationship, that then lead other people into relationship with Jesus. And this purpose is often, and will inevitably at times, be at odds with becoming great. I mean, sometimes you may become great, or I may become great, some of us may become great almost by accident. But there will be plenty of diminishment along the way. This purpose to give ourselves away in love to spouses, children, parents, co-workers, and others around us does at times lead to our diminishment. That's what happens to John the Baptist. As he is pursuing his calling from God to prepare the way for Jesus, it causes his diminishment. And it doesn't, though, but what it doesn't do is cause him to, you know, feel depressed or be unhappy. His ministry may be decreasing, but he's experiencing the opposite. He's full of joy because his purposes are being fulfilled. He's he's fulfilling this life of love by preparing people to fall in love with Jesus. He says, the friend, in verse 29, the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him. When he comes, he is full of joy. He's full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. And John is saying, that joy is mine. In the midst of diminishment, John is full of joy. Because he's fulfilling his calling, leading this life of love, and inviting people into this loving relationship with Jesus. As you reflect on your life, What drives you? What's your calling? 
Is it just sort of trying to grind away in this path of ascent, hoping that as you get higher and better and more and greater that you'll feel more happy about your life? Or is there a deeper calling and purpose that animates your life to live a life of love? So that when things don't go well, when there is diminishment, there is still joy because you can still love. The former, it promises personal happiness, but it delivers misery. The latter, spiritual calling to live a life of love, it inevitably will lead to your diminishment. But, but, it will also result in a fullness of joy. Recent article I read in a newspaper provides a great example that backs this up. The title of the article was, Despite COVID-19, Older People Are Still Happier. <laughs> and the article is basically about joy, the joy that older people have. They use the word happy, but they mean happy despite circumstances, which is really what joy is, this sort of deep soul contentment. And the article was based on a survey that they did back in April. The author writes this. Think back to the first COVID surge in North America last April. The full awareness of the plague had become apparent, and yet there's all this uncertainty that had made it scarier. We we're all anxiously washing our groceries and trying to stay home. That month, researchers surveyed a representative sample of 974 people between the age of 18 and 74, asking how often and how intensely they had felt 29 different positive and negative emotions in the past week, and how often had they been calm or peaceful, concerned or anxious. She goes on to say, older people rationally and accurately said that they were more at risk than younger ones, but surprisingly, they also reported experiencing more positive emotions and fewer negative ones than younger people did. Even when the researchers controlled for other factors like income and personality, older people were still happier or more joyful. In particularly, they were more calm, quiet and appreciative and less concerned and anxious. And this person's writing this article because this is surprising. In a COVID reality, where older people face way more risks than younger people, why is it that they're less anxious, more at peace, and, and more feeling and full of joy in the face of these risks? And, and because these results are true across income back bracket, you know, this isn't about financial stability of older people versus younger people. It's about something else. In fact, they they kind of break all this other stuff down, even removing personality, so that the primary difference is simply about aging. There's something about becoming old that makes a person more joyful, better able to face hardships like COVID. And this author also says it's not even just about COVID is really about all hardships. She writes, it's one of the most re robust results in psychology, and it's true regardless of income, class, or culture. 
This is something that's repeatable in, in other studies, not COVID-related. This means there's something about aging. Something happens as we grow old that causes our inner soul to be transformed in the vast majority of people from this life where you're pursuing happiness and trying to find happiness by greater and greater success and grandeur into a life that learns how to be content deep in the soul with joy. And I think it's because people who are older and have gone through this aging process have been forced to accept what John the Baptist already knew. They've been forced to accept diminishment. And diminishment is the gateway for finding and pursuing other more joy-filled purposes and spiritual callings in life. When we're young, we fight ruthlessly against diminishment. Don't make me smaller. And are often tempted to think that, that we can work hard and get ahead and become great. We can have the Tony Shea story. Manipulate and control situations. Win. Beat others. Get people to like us. But as we age, life happens and we are diminished. A child gets sick, sick and, and it impacts our job performance. A spouse goes through a mental health crisis and we have to learn how to love someone who cannot return the favor. We age and we can't exercise the way we once could. Our bellies grow, our memories fade. It happens to us all. It will happen to us all. We will all be diminished. People in their 70s and 80s, they have faced a whole lot more diminishing than people in their 20s or 30s or 40s. You're in your 70s or 80s, you've been practicing letting go of beauty, control, money, status, power for decades. And so when this new threat rears its head, it's more likely, it's not a guarantee, but it's more likely that you go, yep, this is another thing, but I know what my purpose is already. This COVID thing, it's going to change my life, but it can't keep me from being who I am or doing what I'm called to do. And this means they can still experience joy. Of course, this isn't a given. It's very possible to age, continue to cling to the dreams of your youth, wrap yourselves in possessions even as you get older and older, and continue to pursue status past your prime and your memories going, wish for the success that you could have had. But if we choose to go this path, it's like a surefire guarantee we will not experience joy. That sort of life just leads to bitterness and resentment about lost opportunities, diminished capacities, and a culture that no longer cares for you or thinks you matter. Don't do that. 
Let's not do this. Don't fight your own inevitable diminishment. Rather, let's follow the example of John the Baptist, who said in verse 30, He must become greater. I must become less. John accepted his diminishment because he had a spiritual purpose. He had a calling. And he could pursue that calling even as he was diminishing. And so, he had joy. This can be true for you and me. Advent's all about preparing our hearts for the coming of Christ. Coming to us now, every day, through the Holy Spirit. It's about preparing our hearts for joy. Advent is a season where we pause and we we do the work of preparing our hearts for joy. And John the Baptist provides this crucial insight in his story. You and I cannot give our lives away to this pursuit of becoming great, becoming our own personal messiahs, and also experience joy. Joy only comes when we commit our lives to the spiritual calling of love. What only, what God, whatever God has given to you, whatever space God has put you. And as we do this, it inevitably will lead to our diminishment. We don't become greater. We become less. But then Christ can become greater. As we make our lives all about love, we testify to the goodness of God, how much Christ's love for us nourishes us. We bear witness to how life-giving God's presence in our life is as we are diminished and yet still are full of joy because we have this inner resource. So this Advent, I invite you to see your diminishment as an invitation to refocus your purpose on leading a life of love. Even in the small spaces of your life in quarantine, consider who God is calling you to love. What's your spiritual calling, your purpose today? This is how we prepare our hearts for Jesus. This is the way that leads to a life full of joy. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we look to you, we want to surrender to you and live for you this life of love that you call us into. God, I ask for all the people of New City that are watching this, that the presence of your Spirit as they live lives of love would bear the fruit of joy deep within them. That we'd be a people marked by joy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.